this topic arose because the, um, the Mayapur administration wanted to base this year's seminars at the Mayapur festival on the Upadeshamrita, Sri Upadeshamrita, specifically, I think, the Vrastagati Pratipranati, Guimakyati Prachati, Bhunte Bhojate Chayva, Shadvidam Priti Lakshanam. Prabhupada translates this as follows offering gifts in charity, accepting charitable gifts, revealing one's mind in confidence, inquiring confidentially, accepting prasad, offering prasad. These are the six symptoms of love shared by one devotee and another. Uh, then in his purport, Prabhupada, I'll read a little bit from Prabhupada's purport. He says, even in ordinary social activities, these six types of dealings between two loving friends are absolutely <coughs> necessary. For instance, when one businessman wishes to contact another, he arranges a feast in a hotel. Uh, in India, uh, oftentimes, at least in the past, we probably find the best restaurants, at least the restaurants that offer liquor and meat, were in hotels. And so... People that wanted to go to a sophisticated restaurant and go to a hotel. So Prabhupada says here that. Um, yes. Sorry. Prabhupada calls it a feast. Uh, and over the feast, openly expresses one businessman what he wishes to do. He then inquires from the other. And so on. Uh, Prabhupada says the International Society for Krishna Consciousness has been established to facilitate these six kinds of loving exchanges between devotees. That's the reason for the existence of Prabhupada's movement. This society was started single handedly, but because people are coming forward and dealing with the give and take policy, the society is now expanding all over the world. Prabhupada says, the life of the Krishna Consciousness Society is nourished by these six types of loving exchange among the members. Therefore, people must be given the chance to associate with the devotees of ISKCON and uh, ISKCON because simply by reciprocating in the six ways mentioned above, an ordinary man can fully revive his dormant Krishna Consciousness. So, uh, is this a microphone? It's somebody's recording device. Oh, that's all right. So we say Swami Gate. So, Prabhupada says that ISKCON was founded and exists simply to facilitate these types of loving exchanges. And uh, by engaging in these exchanges, a person can revive uh, his or her Krishna consciousness and uh, become pure devotee. It's not that boring yet, it just started. So don't... I mean, give me a chance, kid. So, so we began in Mayapur if I can now quote myself as an authority on this subject. We began in Mayapur uh, by generally discussing 
the importance of social interaction. I, uh, Actually, in a community like this, you say, is that Radhika? Probably like 12 people will say, yeah. <laughs> so, if we think of the principle of Veda, Veda, difference and non difference, this is true not only in ontology, it's not only true in terms of the nature of existence, that our existence is different from Krishna's existence, but also one with it. So in the sense of ontology, we can talk about one, a difference and non-difference, but also in psychology. But also, also in psychology. And we can approach this in the following way. All of us are, in one sense, private, unique individuals. All of us have, in philosophical terms, a privileged awareness, a privileged understanding of our own thoughts and feelings, even if those uh, feelings and thoughts are not accurate. For example, uh, let's say someone has an irrational fear of some situation or person or event. So even though that fear is irrational, phobia, the, the individual actually has a special understanding of what it feels like to have that fear. Or if you have a particular belief or whatever. In other words, everyone has, you are conscious of your own feelings and thoughts and beliefs in a way that no one else is, of course, except God. So in that sense, we are private individuals. We do have our own private internal life. And at the same time, at the same time, we are social creatures. For example, when we think privately, we generally think verbally. We think in terms of language. If you, if you think about what your thoughts are like, I want to do this, or I wish I hadn't have done that, or or whatever. When we think, we generally think in terms of language. In fact, it's, a, I think, a good question whether... What's that? Light. Light doesn't work? That's all right, because I didn't have a chance to put any makeup on, so... <laughs> Probably better to leave it like this. I have to get new handlers. So, you could even question whether a person that has no language, that has no ability to use any language, can actually think at all, in the sense that we understand it. So language, the fact that we have language, that we can speak or write or think, is, uh, is a social fact. We acquire language socially. As we know, if a young, if it, well, young infant, as if there were old infants, if an infant was put out in a forest somewhere, or even, let's say, concealed somewhere in the San Falasco nature area, 
and never had contact with other human beings, even if the child was fed. I mean, imagine a situation where the child was put out somewhere in the wilderness and somehow fed and protected. You know, like food was somehow given to the child, the child was protected. But the child grew up without any human contact or social contact. Would, would that child really be a human being at all? I mean, not just anatomically, but in terms of consciousness. The child had no language, couldn't communicate, couldn't really think as we understand it. So the very fact that we have language that can think at all is, uh, is a social phenomenon. And as Freud pointed out, the, uh, one of the cleverest demons of recent times, <laughs> as Freud pointed out, um, there is the person whom he called the ego, sort of our conscious individual self, but then there's the superego, which is the, the influence of society, you could say, community society. The fact that even after, let's say, after your parents have passed away, you still feel the pressure like, I'm supposed to act in a certain way, I should speak in a certain way. So all, those, all that social pressure, for example, let's say you're driving your car in the, uh, somewhere, and you come to a red light, and there's no one else around. You're out, as we say, in the middle of nowhere. And there's no one else around. There's no cars, there's no people. And yet, many people will actually stop at the red light. I remember once when I was a kid, I, used, I watched the program Candid Camera, and they put a traffic signal, red, yellow, and green traffic signal, in the middle of a sidewalk. <laughs> And people were walking down the sidewalk, and when they came to the red light, they just stopped right down on the sidewalk. <laughs> Sometimes they would like furtively glance around themselves and then sort of like sneak away. <laughs> so what I mean to say by that is our beliefs, our feelings are also social. So we are simultaneously private individuals, unique individuals, at the same time, we are very much social creatures. And psychologically, let's say, for example, I have a certain idea. Well, not psychologically. Let's just talk about being rational. It's a very common experience we have that we have what we believe is a bright idea. But then we talk to someone else about it, it kind of wilts on the vine. I mean, our bright idea doesn't seem quite as bright. It seems a little dimmer than it did originally. Or the opposite may happen. You may tell someone your idea, and maybe you didn't think it was a good idea, but everyone around you says, this is a great idea. So somehow, if you have a secret, if you never tell anyone, it's not quite as real. There's a sense in which our feelings, our beliefs, our experiences become more real when they are somehow expressed to other people and apparently understood by them, it, it somehow becomes more real to us. And, and we understand it more as social creatures. That's why the frustration, for example, sometimes we're, we want to explain something to someone and they just don't get it. And, and we become frustrated, like, it's important to me that you understand this. So why should it be important? Because somehow in order for, it, for me to understand it, in order for, me, for it to be fully real to me, uh, someone else has to understand it. So, anyway, this is a, um, 
just a very brief and general survey of our existence as unique private individuals with our own thoughts and feelings and at the same time the reality that we are social creatures and that's the oneness and difference. And we are also unique and different from everyone else because that's what the word unique means. But we are not absolutely unique. If we were absolutely unique, if everyone was absolutely unique, we actually couldn't communicate with anyone else. And there could not be any such thing as a community or society. There couldn't be relationships because as soon as two people agree on anything, as soon as two people understand each other in any sense, they're not completely unique. They share something. So we are unique and not unique. We are different and we are not different. And this is also reflected in our spiritual life. So now getting to the topic here of trusting devotees, uh, because of all these things that we've been talking, well, we've been talking about that was trying to make you feel as if you're also talking, I guess. <laughs> or perhaps it was the royal we. But in any case, what I've been discussing, uh, something is at stake. Something important is at stake when we try to establish satisfying relationships with other devotees or when we try to uh, communicate when we try to understand others or try to be understood by them there's actually something at stake something which is a necessary part of a healthy spiritual life and of a healthy human life So any questions so far on this point? Feel free to ask a question as it will give me time to think of what I'm going to say next. <laughs> anyway, moving right along into uncharted waters. There's also a, um, there's a problem. Just as there are obvious benefits in being able to reveal one's mind to devotees, at the same time, uh, I think most people, most devotees, uh, well, I wonder, I don't want to ask you to raise your hands because, uh, but anyway, probably most devotees have at least one, if not more, secrets. In other words, most devotees don't explain everything they think or feel. Well, certainly not to everyone, and sometimes not to anyone. Because all of us, to some extent, are affected by the dark side of the force. <laughs> and so, under what conditions is it even appropriate to reveal one's mind? I'll tell you one, here's one case in point that I explained in Mayapur. I once spoke to a devotee, man, a, as we say, a male-bodied devotee, <laughs> who related his experience with a uh, female-bodied devotee who had been his wife. And that is that this man, uh, this devotee, uh, engaged in adultery. He engaged in adultery with a woman. And... Uh, his wife didn't know about it. Then at a certain point, he felt like he wanted to be honest, he wanted to reveal his mind, and uh, so on and so forth. And so he told his wife, 
and she expressed her gratitude by divorcing him. <laughs> so now, I brought this up because I think they had, they had at least one or more children that were involved. So what should that person have done? I'm raising this as a, um, well, because I think it's interesting. Since we're talking about trusting devotees, did that, in retrospect, if that man, that devotee could do it all over again, let's say at least the part about telling your wife or not, <laughs> did he do the right thing? If he hadn't have told his wife, she wouldn't have known about it. And let's assume that she wouldn't have known about it and their marriage would have continued. Was that better? Was it better to be honest? And then the marriage fell apart. So I'm not going to attempt to answer this now because... Uh, but I wanted to bring this up just to show, to illustrate that even though we have a principle which is not controversial, that we should it's good to reveal your mind, everyone will accept that it's good to reveal your mind. At the same time, uh, there may be circumstances under which it's not obvious to a person whether they should. And to whom should I reveal my mind and uh, or should I at all? So that's another issue. I want to put all these issues out on the table and then hopefully uh, connect the dots. Any questions on that so far? I mean, you're welcome to if you... Yes, back there. Maharaj, you are specifying that as a devotee couple. Yes. Not any it was a devotee couple. I would see this to apply a certain parameter. It might. I mean, it, it does imply parameter, but when the parameters are breached, then what? So, well, here's a few other points I wanted to bring up. Um, well, we raised the point, Michael, under what circumstances? Under what circumstances is it appropriate to reveal one's mind? Whom can you trust? And, and how do you know that you can trust someone? And do we really have, among ourselves in ISKCON, a culture of trustworthiness? Do we have a culture of morality or not? One issue which I was speaking about a lot in Europe and in India is uh, the whole issue of morality. I raise the point that uh, because obviously being able to, to reveal your mind, some things are obvious. That you have to be able to trust the person because the person is going to respect your confidence. The person will not use the information to harm you in some way or the information will not harm the person to whom you reveal it. And so on. So... In terms of morality, I think there's a wide, or at least there was, a widespread philosophical misunderstanding that if you are a devotee, if you are a very serious devotee, then you are beyond morality. And indeed, Krishna himself is beyond morality. Or beyond, we sometimes say mundane morality. The point I want to make is that I think it's philosophically incorrect to say Krishna is beyond morality. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Morality 
uh, by morality, I think the simple mean of morality is to be a moral person is to do what is good, to do what is beneficial, with knowledge. I mean, you can kill somebody with love. I mean, not that love kills them, but... For example, let's say I love someone and that person has some health problem and I try to treat them, but I'm not qualified and so I end up killing them. So, but then again, I think there's, there was a lack of perhaps love in the sense of not recognizing my own limitations. If I was, if I was really serious and sincere, I should have tried to understand my own limitations. But in any case, if morality means to do what is good, to help people, and immorality means to harm people ultimately, to do what is not good for people, then Krishna, how can we say that Krishna is not good? In fact, the, the spiritual platform is called Vishuddha Sattva, purified goodness. It's not that goodness is bad. The problem, I mean, that should be a no-brainer, right? Goodness is not bad. But the problem with mundane goodness is not the goodness. The problem is that mundane goodness is mixed with other modes. That it's not pure goodness. The goodness is not a problem. It's just that the goodness is not pure. If you remove all the impurities so that it's nothing but goodness, then it's spiritual. Because... What's that? And no one has a cell phone, do they? <laughs> Terrible things will happen to someone if their cell phone goes <laughs> So... <laughs> take a moment to have a cell phone music fest. <laughs> spiritual platform is called Vasudeva Sattva Vasudeva Goodness or Vishuddha Sattva uh, Purified Goodness Krishna is not beyond morality any more than he's beyond beauty. Krishna is infinite beauty. Infinite beauty exists within Krishna. If we say for example that God ultimately, or Krishna is beyond beauty, it would mean that Krishna somehow is not beautiful, that the beautiful form of Govinda is somehow only a secondary manifestation of an original God who is not beautiful. But the fact is that Krishna, by his nature, is infinitely beautiful. Infinite beauty is... Krishna is infinite, infinite beauty. So just as Krishna is not beyond beauty, he is the source of all beauty, he's also not beyond goodness. He himself is infinite goodness. So to say that Krishna is beyond mundane morality, it's true only in the sense that he's beyond mundane rules of morality. In other words, in order to bring about the good, in order to bring about the good and avoid harm, 
we have to behave in certain ways, we have to follow certain rules. Krishna is free to bring about the good and to suppress or avoid harm in very creative, innovative ways because he's all-powerful and all-knowing. For example, Krishna can bring about the highest good by dancing with all kinds of girls, well, not all kinds of girls, but that's, anyway, with many girls in the dead of the night, even girls who apparently seem to have uh, formal commitments to other men. So Krishna can do that because he's Krishna, because the girls are actually his own energy, because he's establishing a higher principle, and so on and so forth. When we uh, become promiscuous, we are establishing lower principles, not higher principles. And we are acting without integrity because uh, even though a man may fantasize that a woman is all mine, but technically she's not. Because actually, no soul really belongs to another soul. Every soul belongs to Krishna. So in order for us to... In order for us to... Uh, promote goodness and embody goodness ourselves, we have to follow certain rules. But Krishna doesn't. But that doesn't mean he's beyond morality. It, it simply means that he does, that he himself is infinite morality, infinite goodness, but he can bring about good in the world according to in, in his own way. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, the last verse of the Bhagavad Gita, Sanjaya says, "Yatra Yogeshwara Krishna," wherever Krishna, Lord of Yoga, is present, "Yatra Partha Dhanurdhara," wherever Partha. Uh, wielding his bow is present Tatra there Srir will be uh, beauty or opulence Vijayo victory Bhuti power Dhruvaniti and certain morality unwavering morality so Matir Mama that is my thought so the last literally the last statement of the Gita is that Krishna, there will always be morality wherever Krishna is present. That's the last statement of the Gita. So going back to this issue of relationships among devotees, uh, it's a cliche, it's been said so many times, that in the early days of the movement we skipped over humanity and went straight to transcendence. with the idea that our spirituality would fill in all the blanks or that we didn't really need to be human beings, we're not human beings and even think to think you're a human being is just ignorance, it's, it's basically being a camel or an ass or a hog or a dog or other such creatures. So. So what is our position? What is our humanity? Well, we know, of course, that, that a devotee needs to be healthy as a human being in order to be healthy as a devotee. But why is that the case? And, and how does this... What is the relationship uh, of this with morality? Because ultimately, in the ordinary sense, to be a good human being, 
is to be a moral person. So what is our transcendence and what is our humanity and why are both these things important? And how does this relate to the issue of trust, confidence between devotees? Obviously, because, I mean, I mean, practically, you may believe that someone's a good devotee, they always talk about Krishna, they jump very high in kirtans, and, you know, always serving Krishna, but that person is sort of a, an ecstatic blabbermouth, in a sense, or that person... Ecstatic is like a seed. They sort of ecstatically reproduce whatever they hear. And so you may think, well, this person is very Krishna conscious, but I can't really trust them. But should that be the case, that someone is very Krishna conscious or seems to be Krishna conscious, but you can't trust them? So getting back to this point of humanity, uh, in the Isha Upanishad, it is said, by the way, how late does this go tonight? Until nine until night or until people can't stand it anymore. So. <laughs> There's an Arctic at 10 to 9. Okay. Well, I don't go that long, but... Um. So, the Isopanishad says, Vidyang cha vidyang, Vidyang cha vidyang cha, Jastad bedo bhayang saha. A person that knows, that understands both knowledge and unknowledge, which is how you say ignorance in Sanskrit. Vidya avidya. Tadvedo bhayamsaha. Avidyaya. By unknowledge or by ignorance. Mrityun tirdwa. Crossing over death. Vidya amrita By knowledge, uh, one enjoys immortality. So, how is it that you cross over death by ignorance? This is something which is not often discussed, I think, but it's, uh, it's quite an interesting point. First of all, I think to understand this verse, we have to realize that the word avidya, unknowledge, or ignorance, is Vedic jargon for the material world. The material world is often simply called the ignorance which is, uh, of course, not very flattering, but that's what it's called. So, the material world is so avidya. <laughs> so, uh, by ignorance, crossing over death, crossing over death by ignorance, the way Prabhupada explains this is that you have to understand this world. After all, uh, let's say, for example, you're making ghee, and you put the butter on the pot, in the pot, and you turn the heat on. Uh, you have to know what the impurities are. You, otherwise, you may scoop out the ghee and just leave all the other stuff. So, unless you understand... If you look at yourself... Consider, for example, when, when we were young devotees. So, if, you're, if you are a young devotee now, then uh, see if this fits. I know myself, in the early days of the movement, we were young and enthusiastic, and we, we sort of had this um, undifferentiated enthusiasm, which was composed of pure and impure <laughs> desires. There was the desire to show off, 
there was a desire to surrender to Krishna. And it all gets mixed up together as just one simple, apparently simple thing, enthusiasm. That Lord Chaitanya talks about this in saying that um, when we water the seed of bhakti by hearing and chanting, we are also watering the weeds. So there's a sense in which when you chant Hare Krishna, when you serve Krishna, when we do this, we are actually somehow... Uh, feeding our, our own um, impurities by chanting Hare Krishna. If you think about it. I think about this analogy that um, because the watering process is hearing and chanting about Krishna and yet we're watering the weeds. Interesting point, again a point that's not always uh, we don't always think about this, that when we practice sadhana bhakti we practice Krishna consciousness where we are cultivating both Krishna consciousness and illusion. If we are not careful. If we are not careful. So the the simple way, the simple way in which I think we're cultivating illusion, way a simple way to understand this, is that in any society, in any there's a system of values. A society could not exist, could not differentiate itself from other societies unless it had certain unique values or certain special values. That's true even, let's say, of a nation-state like America or Mexico because, for example, the value of being born in a certain place, the, the value of holding citizenship through that or other means, the value of a certain type of loyalty or collective consciousness and the negative value of violating certain social bonds, certain types of social contracts and so on. So every society, through criminal activity or traitorous political activity or whatever, so every society has a system of values, positive and negative values, and every society rewards and punishes people who embody or promote those positive and negative values. That's why there are statues to patriots or you know, that's why there are statues in public places, public statues. Or certain people, in many ways, the society rewards by reputation, by money, by power, by in many different ways, and punishes also either through incarceration, through humiliation, by various means. Every society promotes its positive values and tries to repress things it considers negative. That's also true for ISKCON. In ISKCON, there are things you can do which will bring you a good reputation and things you can do that will bring you the opposite. Fame and infamy. And there are things you can do in ISKCON which will bring you followers or money in different ways. So all the material things that people desire are available in ISKCON. Well, not everything. I don't think we have a serious organized uh, heroin smuggling ring yet, but <laughs> what? but but in general, in terms of what Lord Chaitanya talked about, dhanang janang sundarim. Lord Chaitanya said, "Na dhanang na janang sundarim." That the kamaye. I do not desire uh, or selfishly desire. You can desire for Krishna. But I don't selfishly desire 
wealth or the dunam, the janam. Janam literally means a follower of people, followers. Or sundari, a beautiful woman. Of course, he was speaking from the male perspective as a sannyasi. And uh, for most women, anyway, no bad jokes here. So, <laughs> but he was speaking from the male perspective as, as a sannyasi that he didn't, I don't desire a beautiful woman. Kavitang vav, which means intellectuality, in, intellectual sophistication. He also included that in the list. So, but all those things are available. All the things that Lord Chaitanya said he didn't want are available in ISKCON, sometimes in large quantities. So, if I want, if I somehow or other am in ISKCON or in, in a Vaishnava society and I want to be there, and yet I have material desires, I can behave in a way that ISKCON will respect and admire so that I can achieve what I want. Followers, prestige, uh, Someone can aspire for women. A woman can aspire to possess a man. And so on and so forth. And so we can actually be practicing bhakti yoga conscientiously, uh, not so much because we're attached to Krishna, but because we're attached to the rewards that the society bestows upon us for behaving in a certain way. And in that way, uh, by our spiritual practice, we can actually be cultivating our own material desires or, or our own sense gratification. Therefore, uh, we really do need to understand ourselves. We have to have the ability to, uh, to look within and really understand what's going on in there. We have to be able to read our own motives. And... Uh, it's said in the, in the Bhagavatam that in order to worship, well, literally it says that those who have good intelligence in this age worship the Lord who chants Hare Krishna and leads the Sankirtan movement. So it requires intelligence to actually understand who you really are and which of your emotions, which of your thoughts are actually Krishna conscious and which are based on something else. And also in others, because if I can't understand the motives of other people, I may not choose my association wisely. I may end up in the, in the wrong Vaishnav gang or group with the wrong association. So, uh, so that's another factor, the, the need, you have to really understand yourself Another factor I brought up is the, the issue of morality. The issue of morality. Do I really value... Who was it that was telling me today that... Um, I won't reveal the mind of the... Uh, the stool pigeon. What are they called? The... the uh, snitch. Snitch. The, but someone said that... Um, well, we were talking... That sometimes on certain devotees, there's like, uh, like you can bend the rules, you don't have to follow the rules because after all, the material world's meaningless anyway. It's all an illusion anyway. I mean, so what about that? We talked about morality. I, I, well, we. I mean, about the point of that we are not really beyond the moral rules. Now, when the Bhagavatam says, for example, that Devarshi Bhutapta Nirnang Patrinang the King Kuro Nayang Ranit Charajan, 
That one who has seriously taken shelter of Krishna, seriously taken shelter of Krishna, wholeheartedly taken shelter of Krishna, no longer has debts to the gods, Deva, Devarshi, to the sages, Buddha, to other creatures, uh, relatives, and uh, or, or just actually optas, his relatives, just people like your inner circle, uh, to human society in general. Don't have debts to these people. You're not a servant to these people. We. It doesn't mean that we're beyond morality. We have to remember that in India, there were um, in Hindu India, or you could say the mundane side of Vedic India. Uh, it, was, it, it tended at certain times and places to be very ritualistic. There were all kinds of debts you had to pay. And you had to just do all kinds of things. Therefore, you really couldn't join a Hare Krishna movement because you were much too busy to do that. You had like a million rituals to perform and all kinds of debts to pay. And you can't just give yourself to Krishna because you had obligations to other people. You had serious formal obligations to other people. So, there, so the Bhagavatam is saying that, look, it's okay to join the Hare Krishna movement. It's okay. I mean, we experience it our, ourselves, many of us. When I joined the Hare Krishna movement, my family, well, at least my parents didn't really approve. They thought, no, I had to, you know, do my college thing and this and that. And in a sense, they were right, but I was at that point. Um, anyway. It's funny, because Prabhupada told me to finish college, and uh, that was the... So... But they had a sense, our parents had a sense that we owed them something. That, that you should live your life in a certain way. You should practice certain types of principles or stick in the religion you were born into. Or you should bring a certain kind of material honor to the family by not joining a bizarre, marginal group of people which only makes people wonder about the family. So... So the Bhagavatam actually does not say that we're beyond morality. It actually doesn't say that. Uh, but we should not hesitate to serve Krishna simply because someone else tells us that you can't do that. You cannot dedicate your life to Krishna. That doesn't mean, it, 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 it's not the same as saying that you should not treat people properly. You should not do whatever you can to uh, be nice to people. Even Prabhupada himself made efforts after he took sannyas, after he developed ISKCON, made efforts to help his family. I was the Prabhupada's secretary in Mayapur in uh, February of 76, actually this time of year, uh, 31 years ago when I was 8 years old. <laughs> and Prabhupada I was very precocious actually I began my career in the GBC at the age of six actually <laughs> which is still in this con record so Prabhupada was Prabhupada was making arrangements to establish a Apartment, I think, or some they arranged to get some facility for his former wife, 
and he was actually personally seeing certain details, like the proper fan was put in, which in Calcutta is a very serious issue, having a proper fan. So, in, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Shuba, Shuba, Falar, Eva Moksha say, you'll be freed from the good and bad fruits of your work. Or, Krishna may say, beyond the dualities. But again, uh, it doesn't mean that we should not be honest. It doesn't mean that we should not be good people. It doesn't mean that the simple fact of being a devotee doesn't mean that we can disregard the uh, other people's rights. For example, sometimes there's a notion, well, I'm a devotee, therefore I can take things. One of the first services many of us had was to liberate flowers from gardens. (laughs) To take back the flowers which the karmis had viciously stolen from Krishna. Now, Talking again about morality, because I, th- I think this is, and this is a three-day seminar, so I have to, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to set a certain foundation for discussion of trust. Uh, why not steal flowers for the deities? There's a very good reason why not to. And that is that, just as to give a sort of an extreme example, when someone commits an abortion or somehow participates in an abortion, a soul is being deprived of a situation that was given to it by God. So we don't say that, well, abortion's bad if it's a devotee kid. Don't like, don't abort devotee babies. But if it's a karmi anyway, it's like, whatever. I and mean, we, don't, we don't say that. I mean, you could, I mean, somewhat, just to play the devil's advocate, a devotee, let's say a particularly zealous devotee might argue, did you want to address that? Yeah, I want to know. Um, who thought to steal them? Why didn't you think to ask? Okay, we'll get to that. <laughs> Actually, thank you for bringing that up. And I will, in just a moment, justify my youthful thievery. So, but... So just before that, we, so why not? There's the fact that we can't abort, it's not okay to abort a non-devotee child. You say, well, if, if the child lives, the child's going to grow up and, and go to McDonald's and, and actually patronize the animal slaughter industry and everything, so why not abort the kid? That's one less meat eater on the planet. I mean, I realize that these statements are a little crude, and uh, it's not my own feeling, but I'm trying to bring up a point. The, the Isopanishad says, bunjita. One should enjoy that which is set aside for him or for, uh, for that person by God and not take other things. Because actually, Krishna cares about everyone. He says clearly in the Gita, Sarvabhutana. He is literally good hearted, the good hearted friend of every creature. And therefore, when Krishna gives certain people flower gardens, or houses, or cars, or families, that is part of the process of bringing those people back to Godhead. The whole material universe is created to 
train people and guide them and enlighten them so they can go back to Godhead. And part of that, an essential part of that process is giving people certain material facilities so they can experience them and understand what the world is and gradually come to Krishna. So if I steal something from someone else, I'm actually interfering. I'm interfering with Krishna's uh, management of that person. I'm interfering with the process by which that person is gradually becoming enlightened. So I, I may do it in the name of Krishna, but actually I'm interfering with Krishna's work rather than serving Krishna. And there's the other point, there's the other point that it just, it's not good for us because we actually developed the wrong mentality and uh, we simply become immoral and we, and we can gradually become degraded. So as far as that question, why do we steal the flowers? Is, where did it come from? Okay. Well, actually, actually, when I stole my flowers, we didn't have the isopanish. That's why I stole the flowers. Okay, this, but I, I want to explain this through a general point, and then we'll, we'll it'll narrow in on your concern. Yes. One of them is to have many flowers. Anyway, so, I'll, so I, I want to I address this now. First of all, some very basic social psychology. Studies of gorilla families. <laughs> slash ashrams. Studies of, studies of gorilla families and elephant communities and everything show that when creatures are deprived of their elders, their behavior often becomes erratic, self-destructive, antisocial, and so on. So because we were a new movement, because this movement was so different in the West, and because it came at a time when there was a great social tension in the West, in America, say, between young and older people, almost all young people joined the movement. In fact, Prabhupada was asked this question in Gainesville. When Prabhupada came to Gainesville and gave his lecture in 1971, a uh, female-bodied reporter from the uh, university newspaper asked Prabhupada, why are there mostly young people here? And Prabhupada asked her, why are there mostly young people in your university? Prabhupada was a great counterpuncher. She, she asked it sort of in a challenging, uh, almost like an attack mode. It, she didn't ask it in a sort of a nice way. She was, she was being a little aggressive. And uh, so Prabhupada shot back, why are there mostly students in your university? And she was so startled by Prabhupada's question, I remember she dropped her pencil. <laughs> I remember that. Prabhupada literally knocked the pencil out of her hand <laughs> without, without touching her. So then she kind, of, she kind of stammered and said, well, because that's the age for education. Prabhupada said, yes, that's the age for Krishna consciousness. 
So in India, for example, Prabhupada attracted many older, very successful professional people, life members, and in, in Bombay and Vrindavan and other places, they had these little like advisory groups of some of the really most talented, most successful people in the country, people who were elderly, 50s, 60s, and so on. And so there, there was this maturity, whereas in the West, because it was almost all young people, uh, it was a very immature society. So you take, that's the first fact, that we were very immature. I was 20 years old, immature. Yeah, I was 20 and not unusually mature for my age. I was just a 20-year-old male whose brain had not fully solidified. You know, as, as studies now show, you know, male brains take a while to fully solidify. <laughs> Sometimes they never do. <laughs> so, that's one fact, this unavoidable immaturity of the movement. Here's another fact. Human beings are wired in such a way that if any behavior is repeated enough by a community, it becomes sacred. It becomes a tradition. Like that song in Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. So if people just do things, I mean, Monty Python, there's this great, you know, Life of Brian by Monty Python. So that if people, like say the military or in government, let's say they play certain songs. I remember when I, when I, at my Harvard graduation, I was like really disappointed. I expected, I just assumed they were going to play Pomp and Circumstances, you know, by Edgar Elgar. Dun, 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 dun. And I was like, we're getting ready to march, you know, into the, and I was thinking, okay, I want, let's go, Pomp and Circumstances. They played something else. I thought, oh my God. I was really disappointed, even though I was a bona fide ISKCON guru. So, I mean, it wasn't like a major emotional issue and I got over it very quickly, but I wanted to hear that song because it was, it was a tradition. But, because, I mean, the simple fact is that Harvard was founded about, um, well, 250 to 300 years before that song was written. So they had another tradition. But anyway, it's a very simple point. There are traditions, like that's the way we do things here. That's way, for example, if you go to a temple and they've done a certain kind of deity worship for years, even though it may not be required according to any Shastra, but if you try to change it, people go crazy because that's not the way we worship the deity here. So it's just a very simple fact of human psychology that in a community or society, when a certain behavior is repeated, uh, it becomes sacred. And so, basically, a lot of immaturity became sacralized, became institutionalized, became a lot of irrational, immature behavior became sacred in ISKCON. That's, it's like real simple stuff. That's, and now here's the third fact. Yeah, here, here's another little item. And that is, if you study the sociology or the psychology of the conversion experience, there's a whole field which is, which studies conversion experiences. And, uh, when you suddenly, dramatically realize that everything you thought was real and important is completely overshadowed, dwarfed by another all-important, overwhelming reality of God, Krishna. <laughs> and you become, so to speak, like a blank slate. Like, every, Especially when you're young. Everything I thought I knew 
was not quite right, and now I realize that something else infinitely more important is the case. When you're in that state of mind, what happens is, it's like in Congress, when they have a bill that the Congress has to pass, so they sort of add on all kinds of little things so they can sneak in their pet issues. So when you have a, let's say, you're in a community and someone is Christian's representative, temple president, for example, or just some older devotee. And when you're in that extremely vulnerable, totally open, blank slate state of mind, they throw in a lot of extra stuff, like if you drool at night when you're sleeping, that um, you know, all kinds of terrible things will happen. If you, if you sneeze on a Thursday when you're facing east in the afternoon, that for three generations, your cousins will sustain foot injuries. So, you know, all this stuff. So if you're told, for example, that... And also, if you're coming from a background, if you're coming from a background where, as we were, revolutionary, down with the established authorities, it was, you know, late 60s and so on, so it dovetailed very nicely. We were anti-establishment, and then we learned that the establishment is actually, you know, they're... they're demonic, the government, there are so many rogues and thieves posing themselves as government leaders. I think you get the, you can connect the dots, right? So when you get all these things together, the lack of elders, the immaturity, the fact that we were coming from a revolutionary anti-authority background, the fact of social psychology, that, be, uh, that behavior which is repeated gradually becomes a sacred tradition no matter how irrational it is for many people. And add this all to the sort of special psychological state which occurs when one has a dramatic conversion experience. And after all, I mean, if you can accept that a, a lotus flower comes out of the navel of God and the, and the creator of the universe is born on it, why, you know, why worry about the flowers? And why can't you pick up a couple of flowers? So it's, it's this, it's this, in fact, Plato, Plato gives the example that when someone comes out of the cave into the light of the sun, uh, in the beginning, they actually can't see as well as they could in the cave, in a sense. Because in the cave, there was a dim light, the mere reflection of light. Plato is quite Vedic. In the cave, there's only the reflection of light, not the real light. But at least your eyes were used to it. When you come out of the darkness into the bright sunlight, you actually get disoriented. And you can't see for a while. I know myself, I was the first, when the Berkeley Temple opened in 1969, I was the first Berkeley student to join there. And uh, so one of my first services was after Sankirtan. We got a lot of coins in those days, because in those days, U.S. coins actually had some value, you could actually buy something with a coin. And so we would, we would you know, stack them, make stacks of 10 and roll them up and take them to the bank the next day. So here I was, a student from Berkeley, and I, for the life of me, could not get my stacks to come out right to 10. It's like maybe 11 or 13 or 8 or something, and I was like... 
I just couldn't, I couldn't somehow manage. In fact, they finally sort of politely told me, it's okay, Prabhu, you don't have to count the coins. You can just, you can just sit in the corner and chant Hare Krishna. So, <laughs> I just couldn't get the, couldn't count to ten. <laughs> However, there's a very happy ending to this story. <laughs> About a month later, a month or two later, I had sort of focused and I, I became the temple treasurer. <laughs> the temple, of course, soon went bankrupt. <laughs> Not just kidding. Actually, I, I, I relearned counting up to ten. So that's the answer to your question. I don't think we have to uh, despise anyone. It's just, so why didn't I know? Because, thanks, obvious. Any other question on these points? Yes. What if you steal Ma? What if you steal Ma? <laughs> well, I mean, if you like snatch a little thing of Ma as a tray goes by, I don't think. Not to the extent where where you actually deprive other devotees of Krishna's mercy. I mean, again, you know, stealing Ma is a great thing, and there's all these stories about stealing Ma Prasada. But at the same time, not, not in the sense of actually disrespecting other people. If I take a little bit that doesn't deprive anyone else, it's one thing. Yes? What about the point that Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that whatever great action a man performs, common men will follow? Yes. So the same point applied to any negative or immoral actions we perform, common people will also follow. They see our Krishna's running around spitting flowers. They think, well, That's a very good point. Yes, because we are held in such incredibly high esteem by the world. <laughs> Our behavior is closely monitored in the world. <laughs> no, but but still, it is a good point. It's a good point because even now the world tends to wonder about us, at least in many parts of the world. At the same time, we are trying to establish ourselves as public leaders. The success of our movement is that people, in fact, accept us as the Brahmins. So if we, in other words, it's, it's a very good point you brought up. It's actually contradictory and absurd to simultaneously do everything in our power to, in order to be accepted as the leaders of people, at the same time behave in a way that if people followed, they, they would just they would have all kinds of troubles. So even though we are not at the present time yet officially installed as the Brahmins of this nation, at the same time, we're trying to become the spiritual leaders, we're trying to take that position, and therefore we should behave properly. Also because people, people in general, since they can't really grasp uh, perfectly a transcendental truth, but they do expect that a spiritual person will at least be moral. And so... Uh, if we don't behave properly, it really undercuts all of our claims to being spiritual. We have to, just like when Prabhupada came to America, he spoke English, not Bengali, to the Americans. So we have to speak a cultural language that people can understand. If we're trying to tell people that we're a spiritual movement, this is spiritual, everybody, 
then if we act in immoral ways, unethical ways, it's sending the signal that we're not spiritual, that we're hypocrites. So it's, it's completely the wrong cultural language. Yes. I would say that's not a Western idea. That's I'm sure, in, in Indian moral philosophy. I, I think all around the world, there's the notion of taking lesser of evils. I don't think that's, that's simply a Western idea. But acting immorally is not the lesser of evils in almost all cases. There are certain exceptions, like what I pointed out in an essay I wrote that um, Krishna tells a story about a Brahmin or a sage who is very proud of always giving. Uh, of always speaking the truth in reply to any question. And at one point, some innocent people were hiding around his ashram, pursued by murderous thieves. And the thieves asked the Brahmin, have you seen the people? Yes. Do you know where they are? Yes. Where are they? They're over there. And so the thieves uh, murdered the innocent people. And so Krishna says, because the sage spoke the truth, he went to hell. So we don't want to carry this to an absurd extreme, but in general, when you're not literally saving someone's life or saving someone from being mutilated or whatever, or from some other significant harm, we really should act properly. For our own sake and for the sake of others. Yes? Well, the devotee is also supposed to save his children. So if something negatively impacts his children, then we have a moral conflict. By the way, it would be wrong to think that in Vedic culture, even back in the good old days, there were no moral conflicts. In every situation, there was one and only one obvious right thing to do. It wasn't like that at all. For example, <clears throat> in the case of Ashwatthama, when, in the Bhagavatam, first canto, when Arjuna and Krishna bring Ashwatthama back, they arrest him and bring him back to the Pandavas camp. And two great devotees, Bhima says, kill him, and Draupadi says, let him go. And they're both great devotees. It was a moral conflict. And Krishna took the middle path. So, they didn't merely let him go, but they didn't physically kill him either. So there are, more, there are conflicting moral principles in this world. It's just the way the world is. And we find these in Vedic culture. We find these in the Bhagavatam, the Chaitanya Charitamrita, great devotees sometimes disagreeing on, on what is the more important principle in a particular situation. So, I mean, devotees sometimes ask, like, what's the Vedic position on cloning? And... Uh, it's not clear that there is a Vedic position. What, what actually Krishna says that there's not a rule for everything. And so we have to reason. Because, because if you had a rule for everything, you'd need like millions of books of rules and who would read them? So there are certain basic principles and we have to reason. There's moral reasoning. Certain things are obviously wrong, like harming innocent people, but certain things are... are 
ambiguous, and therefore one has to learn moral reasoning. And when people are reasoning about moral issues, they sometimes come to different conclusions. Because if you consider the statement, Tarko Pratishta, logic is not the foundation. Which we... But and at the same time, Krishna says, you have to be able to reason morally what are the consequences of, of a particular behavior. And whenever you're reasoning, people may come to different conclusions. And that was Vedic culture. It was a culture in which, based on certain commonly accepted principles, people engage in moral reasoning and sometimes disagree with each other. Yes? The first thing I think we can introduce is our own integrity. I don't mean to say that the leaders don't have integrity, but uh, yeah, I think it's education. I mean, we could pass the GBC resolution saying no one should lie and you know give a few more laughs to the devotees of ISKCON, but yes, we, we definitely need education. And frankly, we need a um, yeah, we need education and, and spiritual leadership. Because one one common thing that I hear is that everybody else does. But but if we if we were enslaved in that psychology, we never would have joined the Hare Krishna movement. We should remember the original courage or eccentricity that led us to join the Hare Krishna movement. We have to do what's right. Not simply be like sheep. We should we should do what's right. And, and set an example for others. Yes? Being born into the movement slightly different experience, but I was wondering if you could address um, the, I still see pervading the idea that um, since it's for Krishna, we could do anything. Uh, I mean, I'll give small examples. The fire marshal is irrelevant because we're doing this as a temple program. Or we don't have to follow the police's or, order because we're taking Jagannath on parade. So we can do what we want even though the police are telling us to do something else. And uh, it's, it's it's very difficult for me to grasp how we can conquer that mentality. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like those waiting for Krishna, we, we can subject ourselves and other people to a fire hazard. Yeah, I, I, at least I think the fact we're talking about it is a good thing. I think it's a good first step. Well, it's not the first step. I'm sure other people have talked about it. It'd be presumptuous to think they haven't, but... But yeah, I, I, I fully agree with you. We have to um, set an example of being honest, respectful people. I think the whole problem is not understanding that, well, what Prabhupada says here, that people will be saved, people will become Krishna conscious by entering into these recipro reciprocal relationships. In other words, if we want people to respect us, we should try respecting other people. 
the world is not going to listen to a Hare Krishna monologue, but they may be interested in a dialogue. So how can we expect people to respect us? If we don't respect them, we can say, well, the difference is we're respectable and they're not. But that's obviously uh, foolish because Krishna says a true yogi sees me everywhere and sees everything in me. And there's a, um, there's a verse in the Bhagavatam that archayamiva haraye pujang yakshadayetri and so on, that a, a devotee or a person a person who honors Krishna only in the form of the deity and doesn't honor Krishna within all creatures is actually a materialistic devotee. The Sanskrit words are prakrita bhakta, a materialistic devotee, from the word prakriti, matter. So if we don't honor the deity, if we don't honor Krishna in everyone we meet, then uh, we don't get it. And like other people brought up here, we have to set the example. It's good for us. It's actually a good discipline to follow the rules. And sometimes there's actually reasons for the rule. It's not just sheer capriciousness on the part of the authorities. Yes? And actually, and that's, what, you know, that's the example. We need to follow, and that's why we could. That's why we could defy any sociological study by leaving everything and joining, because of Prophet. In fact, in, in the Science of Civilization, there's that one article by uh, I think it was a professor who met the devotees on Saturday. He started questioning them, like why would they know about the philosophy? And he realized they knew so little, really. So he went back with them to the temple just to find out. Yes, and, and if we really take Prabhupada seriously as the Acharya, we have to become Bhagavats ourselves. Because the word Bhagavat just means someone who's serving Bhagavan. So we have to, because the people, what you said is true, and at the same time, people become attracted to Prabhupada and see his followers are hypocrites. That also is not. Because I know in my case, in my own life, I was really struck by Prabhupada and by his books. But then when I saw the devotees and saw that there were people actually following, that's really what persuaded me to join the movement. It was seeing that this is doable. There are people who are actually following Prabhupada and seriously practicing. So it's really, it's having a great leader as we do in Prabhupada and then showing the world how to follow him. So I agree with you, but but then but then if we do as you say and learn about Prabhupada and, and take it very seriously, then we have to.
Yes. Such as social or political moral issues or environmental issues, whatever issues like could be considered more mundane, usually are not very relevant, are not of high interest, and many times taken as not important. Like so we talk like we already have transcend those issues and try to put ourselves in a higher level of morality. And can we do that? Can we skip the levels of morality? I think the high and the higher levels of morality, we would be concerned about other issues. For example, uh, the Christians. Well, it's a very there's all kinds of people who are Christians, but but many Christian groups now are, are actually trying to make the environmental curve. In the beginning, it's like they were totally not there, but now I just saw in uh, Georgia a Christian energy, natural energy bar or something that has all the ingredients listed in some book of the Bible or something. So if we say the earth belongs to Krishna, as we do, it's Krishna's energy, how could we not advocate treating Krishna's earth properly? <coughs> Prabhupada's fear, obviously, Prabhupada's fear was that we would be distracted from our spiritual mission. And I think perhaps... Uh, We've taken that too far in the sense of, but we have, we, we have a book on the environment. There's a book, what's it called? Divine Nature or something. Prabhupada himself read newspapers and he, when his original Back to God in India, he used to comment about, he used to quote newspapers and talk about 
you talked about public issues. So we, we should be, I think ISCON needs to develop what are called public intellectuals, people who actually can intelligently discuss issues of public concern. And so in answer to your question, uh, the notion that we're transcendental can be used to justify what ultimately is a type of arrogance and ignorance and intellectual laziness. That's, there's the danger. So yeah, we, I think we should try to show the relevance of Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada once asked a disciple to write a book showing that Krishna consciousness is the solution to all problems. So I, I think there's a balance. On the one hand, we should be concerned. On the other hand, we should remember that ultimately the solution is Krishna, but we should go through the steps to see exactly what that means in practical terms. For example, to give one simple example of thinking things through. Prabhupada mentioned that um, Prabhupada mentioned that it was a symptom or expression of the fallen state of the world that they had all these like barking dogs at the immigration counters when you go into a country like who are you, what do you want rather than seeing that all the earth is God's earth and therefore any, any one of God's creatures should be able to go here, there, anywhere. Now, that's obviously true at the same time consider this like it or not we have we live in democratic political systems or under democratic political systems it seems to be the case if you study democracy in different countries in the world that the, and this was stated in the federalist papers by the people that wrote the constitution and set up the american system that the more educated the electorate the people are the more the people are educated know what's going on the more they can actually exercise their rights of self-government. You can say government of the people, by the people, for the people, but if the people are ignorant and foolish, it, it leads to all kinds of disasters. So, if you have an immigration of people who are educated, or let me put it this way, if you look at democratic, so-called democratic regimes around the world, at least my experience has been, the more educated the electorate is, the more you get actual democracy and things more or less go on properly. The more you get an ignorant electorate, people are just not educated, don't know the issues, don't care about the issues, sort of simple or ignorant people, uh, the more you find the political system is corrupted. So, uh, I think for obvious reasons. So now, if there is massive immigration of largely uneducated people, people that do not have a culture, do not have a tradition of education, there's a sense in which that will subvert the political system. So if you have a monarchy, and Prabhupada tended to think in monarchical terms, if you have a monarchy, then it's not really a problem because you have a leader that just says, okay, you guys over here, you guys over there, you do this, you do that. However, in a democratic regime, there are real issues about the social fabric, about the uh, state of the, of the government, and so on and so forth. So th there are issues we worked out. Or for another example, uh, Prabhupada said that we should establish the Varna system. That's, you know, the Varnashtam, especially the Varna system. And that's certainly true. The world desperately needs it. At the same time, 
if we study history, we find that the Varna system is really based on an agrarian economy. In fact, the Varna system is the Indian feudal system, in a sense. And so, because we don't live in an agrarian society, we live in an industrial and post-industrial society, for many reasons, it's very difficult to establish a simple system like the four Varnas. In fact, if we study the collapse of the European Varna system, which was the feudal system, it collapsed because of the Industrial Revolution. So how do you, how do you establish the Varna system in a non-agrarian society? That's when Prabhupada started talking about Varnashram. He also started talking about getting farms in 1974. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to think about in practical terms. How do we carry out Prabhupada's instructions? How do we react to public issues? What does it really mean in practical terms, in terms of Krishna consciousness? So, yeah, I'm all in favor of, of being concerned about public issues, but from a point of view of Krishna consciousness. Yes? Yes. Um, and I was wondering, uh, that seems to present a very typical kind of moral dilemma that a lot of people experience. Yeah, it is a moral dilemma. So that's just another evidence that it's a moral dilemma. And you know, there are a million factors and variables I don't want to say. Yes, if you ever find yourself in this situation, this is what you should do. In fact, this brings up another point about trusting. And... Uh, uh, maybe maybe I'll. What time is this thing? I think I, yeah, I want to end it very soon because I've heard many scientific many scientific studies about attention span, <laughs> and we're way over it. So perhaps I'll just say what I want to talk about tomorrow. I want to bring up one sacred cow, and that is uh, guru disciple relationships in the Hare Krishna movement and the danger of not getting it right either on one extreme or, or going to one extreme in the sense of not having proper etiquette, not having proper respect, going to the other extreme of having sort of a mythological notion of the guru, which leads to uh, sometimes dysfunctional exchanges. And, and so in terms of, because some of the examples that Prabhupada gives of trusting are trusting a senior devotee, a guru, an advanced devotee, and so, in what situations, to trust an advanced devotee, does, does that mean that an advanced devotee is, for example, qualified to advise you on your, on your financial management or, or on your marriage or on your all kinds of things? What if you have an actual emotional issue and, and the guru or some, someone in authority or a temple president or GBC is not actually familiar with that? So, so to what extent should we trust senior devotees, gurus, temple presidents, GBC, parents? To what extent, extent should we trust senior devotees 
Krishna. To what extent does her Krishna consciousness translate into material expertise? To what extent doesn't it? And so, in general, how do you get? How, how do you how do you trust? Or when should you trust? When should you not trust? And so on. Anyway, that's something I want to talk about perhaps tomorrow. Yes. Why not? It's so funny, you're so short, you look so short. You did touch confidentiality Thank you for uh, helping me to be coherent. Yeah, this whole discussion of morality. Uh, because trust confidentiality is really important for our own spiritual health, which includes our health as human beings. I don't think you can be spiritually healthy if you're unhealthy as a human being. Uh, In order to have that, we really need to take very seriously certain moral principles. We've discussed that in various ways. We have to get over the idea that to be transcendental means you're beyond morality. It doesn't mean you're beyond morality. It simply means that you actually are... Uh, you can more precisely be moral. You can be moral in a more effective way. And uh, so in relationships, like if I give my word to someone, now of course if someone reveals their mind and says, you promise you won't tell anyone? Yes, I trust you, I know you're honest. I plan to kill someone tomorrow. (laughs) But I know you'll keep your word not telling anyone. So again, there are always reasonable exceptions. But in general, uh... We need to have the highest integrity. And also that means not assuming that I not assuming I know what I don't know, knowing what my own limitations are. The, and that gets into issues we discussed in my for like in many places, interpreting, let's say, spiritual authority structures as meaning that you're gonna treat adults like children which I think in many ways has been unhealthy. The notion that, uh, well, you're born again, so you're child again. I mean, it is true, we go through a second birth, and there is a, a period in our spiritual life in which we need perhaps some guidance, but ultimately, it can be very unhealthy to interpret uh, authority relationships in spiritual life as meaning that children, adults be treated like children. So that's what I wanted. That, that, that's the cliffhanger to get you back tomorrow. Yes. So I'm not going to go through this whole thing now, but I wanted to just, that's what I wanted to talk about. Basically, we should accept good advice. I mean, sometimes, if we want to be honest, sometimes a non-devotee can give us good advice, sometimes a devotee can give us bad advice, or vice versa. If someone's advising us on theology, like you don't need to worship Krishna, that sounds like bad advice. But in practical matters, uh, I consult experts, devotees and non-devotees, we just have to consult people that actually know what they're talking about. Well, it depends on what kind of issue it is. We can, I think in general we, we have to have a balance where we're, we're faithful to 
Lord Chaitanya, but at the same time we respect the world. And, and we, because there is wisdom in the world, there are wise people in the world. They may not be wise about everything, but they're wise about some things. And I think that the natural relationship between us and the world is one of mutual respect. But, at the same time, knowing that in certain areas we have special uh, knowledge, which is true. Yes, Brother Oh, There's this uh, a dilemma we have um, uh, the injunctions to really only associate intimately with devotees, uh, yet um, uh, there are many wise pieces of advice that we need will come from the non-devotees. So these seem to be somewhat contradictory. Well, association intimate association. If someone gives us good advice, we should take it. But there's, there's a sense in which, how should I put it? Association, I think here means not mere physical proximity. Association doesn't mean merely having a serious discussion with someone. So here I think the word association means that there is a group of people with whom ultimately I identify. I mean, obviously, in a sense, we identify with everyone because we're all living beings. We're all part and parcel of Krishna. We're all so there are senses in which we do identify with other people. But in terms of our ultimate identification, the devotees are a separate group, which Krishna describes as a separate group. At the same time, we're all souls. So there's a special kind of intimacy. Where, which is reserved for those about whom you can agree on the most important things. If you think about it, if I, if I say, okay, I'm going to have an intimate relationship with someone about whom I don't agree on the most important things of life. And so, I mean, so there's some contradiction there. We should certainly be kind to people. We should be affectionate to people. We should treat them with all respect. They're a part of Krishna. But if the most important things in life really are the most important things in my life, it's not just like a doctrine, then my most important relationships have to be with people about whom I can agree on the most important things. The extent to which my most important relationships are with people with whom I cannot agree on the most important things, to that extent, these most important things really aren't that important to me. Because, okay, stuff like you know who we ultimately are, what God is, or relationship with God, that's not so important. The real point is, you know, we're buddies. <laughs> so it's not a question of going to one extreme or the other. I think we should treat, we should like people. Because they're all part of Krishna. We should like people. We should treat them with kindness, with respect. But at the same time, if some things really are most important to you, that has to be reflected in your choice of most intimate acquaintances. Otherwise, there's just a lack of integrity, I think. Yes? Maharaj, I have a... Prabhu. <laughs> It's great to be called Great King. At, uh... <laughs> uh, I have a, a question and a little bit uh, analogy.
study I did about the devotee offense, I think this is the greatest fear I have, and I want to be have that fear because I haven't found any story of any devotee suffering after even taking this bhakti yoga, which uh, produced the knowledge and renunciation or detachment as a result of performing devotional service. And if it is seen that the devotee suffers in future, you may say, well, this comes from a previous impression, prarabdha or prarabdha, whatever, the, but ultimate comes to a point, it's offense. No, well, actually, we have seen many devotees suffer certain lifestyle injuries and diseases directly related to bhakti yoga. For example, uh, gorging themselves on mahaprasadam. I mean, just, just eating improperly, carrying heavy sankirtan bags on one shoulder, resulting in being permanently lopsided, having leg and foot injuries. and So, there is, a, frankly... Uh, there are a lot of injuries and diseases I've observed just because of an irrational lifestyle within bhakti yoga. So you, I mean, you're, you're right in saying that it's not caused by bhakti yoga, but it's caused by just not living intelligently as a devotee. But if you keep some practicing, definitely Krishna will curtail, design a formula that he will come back to that intelligence. Yeah, well sometimes what, what gets curtailed is your life in a particular body. And so, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to minimize offenses, but um, we can suffer for many reasons. But Maharaj, it is also explained by Srila Prabhupada in the Parvata of Madhavendra Puripas, uh, with Ramachandra Puri, that the desire to enjoy in this material world, the root cause is the offense. So, if, if we suggest somebody for their moral... Well, well in that case, the offense is... In other words, we come to Krishna consciousness with certain knowledge and with certain ignorance. And when we practice bhakti yoga, we do so with certain amount of knowledge and certain amount of ignorance. And certain types of lifestyles, for example, not getting proper exercise. When Prabhupada went to a cardiologist and the doctor said, you need to get exercise, and Prabhupada started taking walks every day. That's why Prabhupada started his morning walks. He didn't think that, well, I have heart problems because of my offenses. I think he believed it was because he wasn't taking getting enough exercise. So, so there are. I think this is a very important point. The idea that if I'm just a good devotee and don't commit offenses, I can have the most irrational lifestyle, and uh, I'll, I won't suffer. We now know to be completely false. I mean, I could say that if I, I can jump off a building as long as I don't offend anyone on the way down, <laughs> I'll be okay. No, but, but, but I'm saying that a lot of devotee suffering has come from an irrational lifestyle and not taking proper care of the body, going to the extreme of... In other words, if, if, you, if we really understand that our body belongs to Krishna, we have to take care of it. How can we tell the public, uh, listen up everybody, uh, public, your body actually belongs to Krishna? How can we tell the world that and then trash our own bodies? By not getting exercise, by not eating properly, by not keeping clean, etc., etc. So a lot of suffering, as we know. Now in a sense, you're right, that's an offense, because it's an offense to Krishna 
to trash the body he gave you to practice self-realization. So trashing your body, not taking care of your body, thinking that healthy food is not bona fide. I mean... Why do I put something else though? I know, but that's my point, that... Um, <laughs> That we do, we do see a tremendous amount of devotee suffering, which can be directly traced to an irrational lifestyle, and uh, that irrational lifestyle, in a sense, is not, you know, paying attention to Krishna's interest. So, anything else? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, if someone goes to a party. Yes. If, if the spouse has a problem or something and he's taking advice or she's taking advice from a karmi who will be committing offense against some great uh, soul who told her, why did you cook for Mangalarti sweet? And he blasted her. This is happening in my presence in somewhere in America temple. And then she took advice from that uh, karmi uh, counselor. Well, wait a second. Hold it. Time out. There are actually many karmis in the United States who are not against cooking mangalarti sweets. <laughs> no, but, but my point is that there are many non-devotees who are not offensive. In fact, a Madhyamadikari, a middle right holder, a Madhyamadikari sees, makes a distinction between innocent people that just need information and people are actually envious of Krishna. If I was with Prabhupada one time in a morning walk in Rancho Park in Los Angeles and one Brahmin, you know those things in the early days of the movement, some of you are old enough may remember, where devotees really wanted to like shock Prabhupada with the latest incredible information of the new depths to which Kali Yuga plunged. Like, so... <laughs> Like devotees will typically say in Bhagavatam classes, and every year there's more and more crime in this country, even though the crime statistics are there's less crime. It's just like a thing we do. So, I remember one time I was with Prabhupada, I was with Prabhupada, you know, one brahmachari came up, typical, those of you who were there, Prabhupada! Prabhupada! What did he say that, uh, he was a book distributor, and he said that, you know, I'm going out of Sankirtan, Prabhupada, and the, uh, the karmis, they're really demons, they're really... And so Prabhupada said no. He said no. He said, I'm in America. He said no, they're actually nice people. They're just ignorant. You have, to, you have to explain things to them. So it's not that the idea that karmis are all offenders is, is not at all our philosophy. We should obviously follow the rule for Madhyamati at least. So if we find someone that's really envious and offensive... We should select and delete them. But <laughs> my experience is that there are many, many, in fact, there are millions and millions of, as we so lovingly call them, karmis <laughs> all around the world who are actually nice people and uh, respect what we're doing if we just explain it properly. Isn't that the majority actually? Yeah, that's what Prabhupada said. Sometimes good guys don't wear saffron. Yes. Maharaj. <laughs> yes. Should we do the aarti on the curtain or? Uh...
Uh, what is RT now? Yeah. Okay, one last thing, and then we'll maybe go to open the curtains. Okay. Yes. I used, to, I used to hear and still hear occasionally when devotees or Vaishnavas feel that they should view exemplary Vaishnavas as better than exemplary Christians or better than exemplary Jews. Or, do you understand? Yes. How do you, how do you view that? Well, um, to the extent that there's value in Krishna, that there's special value in Krishna, there must be special value in worshiping Krishna. Now, if someone's an exemplary Jew or Christian, there are certain moral principles that say, like, not participating in animal slaughter, which, which are not Hindu principles, it's not Christian or Jewish, it's just a moral principle, it's a universal moral principle. So, to me, someone cannot weasel out of that by saying, well, that's not my religion. You know, I'm following my religion, and, and according to my best understanding, I'm not required to do that. I think people are, are morally required to do certain things. It's just like you can't say because I'm a devotee, I don't have to respect certain, I don't respect other people. So if you look at Bhagavad Gita, here's a very interesting point. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that uh, those standing in goodness, literally, go up, go upward, elevated. And if you look at all the descriptions of the mode of goodness in the Bhagavad Gita, it has nothing to do with any religious doctrine. According to the Bhagavad Gita, you can be materially elevated, be materially happy, and have material wisdom and not be engaged with Krishna. So, that's the Bhagavad Gita. You don't read it and weep. Now, if you... In fact, Krishna says, Yajante Sapika Devan. Those in goodness worship the gods in the plural, small g. So, and Krishna says, Urdhvanga Chanti Even So, the Bhagavad Gita is not dogmatic. It's not this psychotic thing that if you commit certain mental crimes by not believing in your heart that Krishna is this or that, you'll be tortured forever in a lake of fire. It's not this psychotic, monstrous vision of God. And Jesus, by the way, I won't get into the whole history now, taught the exact same thing that I just described. So... So therefore, when I see a person, Jew, Christian, Muslim, Vaishnava, whatever, in terms of judging the person's character, it's, nothing, it's not about religion, it's just about the person's character. Krishna describes good character, morality, not in dogmatic terms, not in doctrinal terms, just in terms of common sense, universal morality. So that has to be seen. Then, in terms of someone's spiritual understanding... Uh, I think it is relevant the extent to which someone understands God or the extent to which they're open to Krishna. If someone like really categorically rejects the idea of Krishna, I mean, that has to influence my rating. <laughs> I may... Otherwise, I feel like I'm just not taking Krishna seriously. But we do find certain people in other religions who in, many, in some ways do exhibit better character. Now, this than certain devotees. And it's obvious. It's like a no-brainer. Sometimes that verse is misunderstood. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Last time we invited him to give a seminar. So, sometimes there's a misunderstanding of that verse, Yasyasti Bhaktir Bhagavati Kinjana, that one who has unflinching, or, or not unflinching, it says, uh, 
Yeah, you could say exclusive devotion for the Lord, Krishna. Or just says for the Lord, actually, Bhagavad. Uh, literally resembles the demigod with all good qualities. Resembles the gods. But this sometimes translated as someone is not a devotee of Krishna, they have no good qualities. That's not actually what it says. Grammatically in Sanskrit, that's actually not what it says. The Bhagavatam does not say that one who is not a devotee of Krishna will have no good qualities. There's no such statement. What, the, what it actually says grammatically is Kuto Mahadguna. If it was Kuto Mahaguna, we have to have great qualities. What it says is they won't have the qualities of great souls. They may have common decency, common morality, but not the qualities of great souls. 